0: to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. As we get started this morning, I just wanted to share with you a little bit of a, of a history to, to, you know, Memorial Day weekend. Memorial Day weekend was originally called Decoration Day. It originated during the American Civil War when citizens placed flowers on the graves of those who had been killed in battle. More than a dozen places have claimed to be the birthplace of the holiday, uh, just a few of them. October 1864, three women in Bowlesburg, Pennsylvania, are said to have decorated the graves of loved ones who died during the Civil War. Then they returned in July 1865 accompanied by more citizens for a a more general commemoration. Another, a large observance primarily involving African-Americans took place in May 1865 in Charleston, South Carolina. Another formal observance for both Union and Confederate soldiers took place in 1866 in Columbus, Mississippi. In 1868, John Logan, commander of the, and chief of the Grand Army of the Republic, an organization of Union veterans, promoted a national holiday on May 30th for the purpose of strewing flowers or otherwise decorating the graves of comrades who died in defense of their country during the late rebellion. After World War I, as the day became, came to be observed in honor of those who died in all U.S. wars, its name changed from Decoration Day to what we call it today, Memorial Day. Since 1971, Memorial Day has been observed on the last Monday in May, where we also call it the unofficial start of summer, right? Uh, it, growing up where I did in, in upstate New York, it was Memorial Day weekend when we started planting our gardens, just to get you an idea. Yeah, that was the last risk of frost, so that was how late we started up there. But it's a day set aside to remember and to honor those who have died in our nation's wars. Today, we also recognize those who have served in our military those who have been willing to put their lives on the line um, should duty call. So, if you're here today and you've served in either the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, or the Coast Guard, would you please stand for a moment? I have several here. Let's give a hand for those who've served our country. Thank you for these brave Americans who are willing to serve our country uh, to ensure our freedom. So today as we move into our, our, our lesson, so Memorial Day brings with it this, this idea of remembering, right? Remember, memorial, remembering things. We remember the sacrifice that others paid for our freedom. Remembering is good for us, isn't it? Remembering is good. I have three brothers and it's not very often that we all, all four of us get together. Uh, in the same place at the same time, but when we do, maybe you're like, you're like us, uh, when we do have the opportunity to get together, we find ourselves remembering, reminiscing, going over our past, um, reliving things that we, that we did together, we share stories of things we've, that we've done. Um, sometimes my mom is shocked when she hears us sharing stories, So you did that? <laughs> so, um, but maybe you're like me, but as I was preparing for this morning's message, I I thought about the the impact of of shared experiences, shared experiences. Um, As I said, my brothers and I, we shared experiences. We love talking about them. I did a Google search of the term shared experiences and found a number of articles that that talk about the benefits of of shared experiences. Let me just share a few with you. Um, In a couple of studies conducted out of Yale University, scientists found that sharing an experience with another person, even without communicating, amplifies that experience. Both pleasant and unexp- un- un- unpleasant experiences were more intense when they were shared with someone else. And they tested it by using chocolate. So they had some very flavorable, good-tasting chocolate, and they gave it to, to groups of people, some by themselves, some with others. The ones that, were, that shared it, that ate together, rated it as, being, as tasting better than those that ate it alone. Conversely, those that ate bitter chocolate, extremely bitter chocolate, also rated it better if they shared it alone, or together, than if they did alone. So shared experiences can bring value. Um, another one says that when we look back on our lives, the things we remember the most are experiences we shared with others. Some good, some bad, but all of them made us who we are. Positive shared experiences enhance our feelings of belonging, connectedness, and a sense of meaning. It also boosts our self-esteem and decreases feelings of depression, anxiety, and isolation. Another article said that shared experiences provide mental and physical health benefits. We develop longer-lasting happiness, we create meaningful relationships, we broaden our sense of purpose, and we stay healthier longer by having shared experiences. And then lastly, scientists, uh, researchers and scientists have learned that reminiscing not only brings people joy, but it also gives them the sense that life is meaningful and has purpose. Nostalgia, they quote this, Nostalgia seems to have the most benefit when people reflect on how loss and other negative experiences contributed to personal growth or success or can be appreciated. So from these articles, it's clear that there are benefits to shared experiences and remembering them. So depending on the, the translation of your Bible, what you use, and the specificity of the word, but the word remember is found over 160 times in the Bible. Over 160 times. And if you count its variances, remembering and other variants, you'll get over 500 times that a variant of the word remember is found in the Bible. So that brings us to our text this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's a hard black, uh, hard black Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Please take that, use it. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home, and, and that's our gift to you. Uh, use that and use it, use it well. But let's begin at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Look at how it starts, Therefore, remember, therefore, remember. Um, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, Who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself a new man in one place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for this... um, this idea of uh, of remembering and remembering shared experiences that we have together. Um, Help us to see clearly from your word this morning how connected we are and what that means uh, for us today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, the scripture opens with the words, therefore, remember. It's been said many times that when, by preachers, you probably heard it, but when you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what's that therefore, therefore? It always points back to something that had been previously written. It may be in the same chapter or previous verses or even earlier chapters. In this case, let's take a few minutes to see what this therefore is there for and to whom Paul is writing when he calls them to remember. Well, let's start with the who question first. We have a couple of very clear indications for us in this passage about who Paul is writing to. Turn with me, if you will, back to chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who were in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now jump with me to chapter 2, verse 11, where we started. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So, the book of Ephesians, then, is written to Gentile believers, or saints, from the church at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ. That's our audience, Gentile believers who are faithful in Christ from the church at Ephesus. I dare say that most, if not all of us here this morning, are Gentile believers, right? Anybody not? Anybody Jewish? I don't see Dahlia or family here this morning, so I dare say we're all Gentile believers, most of us would call ourselves saints, and I think most of us would consider ourselves to be faithful in Christ Jesus. So we have a shared experience with the recipients of this letter, don't we? So the therefore now is relevant for us today as well. So let's dig in and just see what see just what Paul encouraged these faithful saints to remember. What is he pointing them back to? Well, let's I want to have you look at three elements of this passage that I see this morning. First, remember what you were. He's calling them to remember what you were. Paul begins his call for the Ephesians to remember by first speaking of their past. He reminds them that they are Gentiles. This church appears to have uh, experienced some friction between Jews and Gentiles. This would explain why Paul goes into a discussion on the relationship between these two groups at this point. In verse 11, he shows that the Gentiles Hopeless condition before salvation by contrasting them with the Jews. Warren Weersby, a, a, a commentator, wrote this. He said, In the first ten verses of Ephesians 2, Paul has discussed the salvation of sinners in general, but now he turns to the work of Christ for Gentiles in particular. Most of the converts in the Ephesian church were Gentiles, and they knew that much of God's program in the Old Testament involved the Jews. For centuries, the circumcision, or the Jews, had looked down upon the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, with an attitude that God never intended for them to display. The fact that a Jew had received this physical mark of the covenant was no proof that he was a man of faith. It was physical. It was done by hands. God's plan of salvation in the Old Testament came through the Jewish nation. That's That still didn't mean that all Jews were truly redeemed. It only meant that the message of redemption came through the Jewish nation. The Ephesians, as Gentiles, did not have natural uh, natural access to that message of salvation. Paul contracts the conditions of the Jews and the Gentiles to show the Ephesians how significant their salvation is. Circumcision was a source of pride for the Jews. It was a visible sign of their historic relationship with God. Therefore, it was a term of derision, a religious slur, if you will, for the Jews to call the Gentiles uncircumcised. It was a slur, much like we might use today in our our culture for, for slur words. The Jewish nation had forfeited their special position with God because while they were physically circumcised, Their heart attitude was not one of submission to God. So Paul says the Jews were called to circumcision by what is made in the flesh by human hands. He implies that while they were physically circumcised, their heart was not. Their heart was not, as it were, circumcised, nor were they submissive to God. So in verse 12, Paul emphasizes that the Gentiles were, here's what they were, they were separated from Christ, separated from Christ, alienated or excluded from the commonwealth or citizenship of Israel they were strangers or foreigners to the covenants of the promise they were without hope and they were without god in the world what a bleak litany if you will right that's that's pretty bleak separated alienated strangers without hope without god and as i mentioned our text this morning begins with the word therefore the word therefore points back to what had previously been written Um, this, therefore, points us back to the first half of chapter 2, which gives us an even deeper insight into their spiritual condition. The old commercial says, but wait, there's more, right? There's more to their condition. Let's look back, if you will. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Recall the audience for this letter. Gentile saints who were faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul calls them to remember what they were. He, Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the Jewish nation. The nation of Israel had been given promises or covenants by God that they would have a Messiah. This gave them hope, and afforded an avenue to God for them. But not being Jews, the Gentiles did not have these advantages. No hope. Strangers alienated. A Gentile Gentile might convert to Judaism, but then he would no longer be a Gentile, but a converted Jew. Therefore, true Gentiles were utterly without hope, even with their many religions and many small g-gods. The one God did not acknowledge them because they did not acknowledge him. It's important to verse 3 that, that verse 3 makes it clear that this is our story as well. Verse 3 says that we all, we all, this is our story too, it's a shared experiences. And it ends with the, like the rest of mankind. This is relevant for us as well. Before salvation, we too were separated, alienated, strangers who had no hope and were without God. We were spiritually dead in our sins. We were disobedient to God. We were driven by our flesh. We were children of God's wrath. We, therefore, have a shared experience with these Gentile saints at the church in Ephesus, don't we? That's our story. Jesus calls them, or Paul, excuse me, Paul calls them in this letter to remember what you were. Remember what you were. He also calls them now to remember what you are, what you are now. God because of his mercy and love did not leave them in this hopeless condition. Christ abolished the distinction between Jew and Gentile. All people are now considered the same before God. His death on the cross made this wonderful thing possible. Look with me will if you will at verse 13. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This but now in Ephesians 2.13 parallels the, the but God in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. That verse says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. There are, I think, perhaps no two better words in all of Scripture than what we find in Ephesians 2:4, but but God. We were hopeless in our conditions. Remember what you were: dead hopeless, without God, strangers, alienated. But God, but God acted, but God acted. And verse 13 says, but now, but now, this is what you are. So both verses speak of this gracious intervention of God on behalf of lost sinners. Uh, again, two, two the most powerful words in all of the Bible. God acts when mankind can't. He acts when we can't. Uh, we were dead and without hope, and Paul calls these believers to remember what you are now. First, he made them and us alive together with Christ. Look at verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Our sins had made us spiritually dead. They separated us from God. Christ accomplished the spiritual resurrection by the power of the Spirit using the Word. In the four Gospels, it is recorded that Jesus raised three people from the dead. The widow's son in Luke chapter 7, Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8, and Lazarus in John chapter 11. In each case, he spoke the Word and gave life. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, it says that the Word of God is living and active. These three physical resurrections are pictures of the spiritual resurrection that comes to sinners when we hear the word and believe. John chapter 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. How can a dead man walk? By hearing the word of God, and God makes him alive. But our spiritual resurrection is much greater because it puts us also in union with, with Christ, God made us alive together with Christ. As members of His body, we are united to Him, so we now share His resurrection life and story. Remember before, you were strangers, you were alienated. Now you're with Christ. Secondly, according to chapter 2, verse 6, we are raised up with Christ. We're raised up with Christ. Life in Christ came because we experienced His resurrection in the spiritual realm. We were raised up from our sin death and given opportunity for new life. Still facing life on earth where Satan reigns, we live with Christ as part of his kingdom. Third, he also now seated us with him in the heavenly places. We're now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That is, he he made it possible and certain for our resurrection from the dead. We will live eternally one day. Uh, and, his mysteriously, and he has mysteriously positioned us in heaven where Christ dwells. Where's your dwelling place today? In heaven. Yeah, I'm physically here on earth. But if you're a believer in Christ, your position is already secure. You are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's a figure of speech that means God considers us worthy and destined us to be seated with Christ in heaven when we get there. God has decided to do it, and it's as good as done. The significance of being seated with Christ is, is much the same as being seated at the head table at a banquet where there are many important people. It's a privilege and honor, and it marks you as one of the important people. We're all going to be important in heaven. You're important in heaven. You're important to God. How will we be important, you ask? Well, that's a good question. We will share with Christ in his rule as king. Um, we'll be seated on thrones according to Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. You will be seated with Christ on the throne. That's who you are now. In fact, we already exercise power with Christ over the powers of this age. We can live our lives reflecting God's kingdom, not Satan's kingdom. We are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We are now alive in Christ, sharing his power and authority, representing him in the battle with Satan where victory is assured with through the resurrection. Moving back to chapter 2, we see a few more reminders about what you are now. What you are now. Verses 13 through 17 describe that we've been brought near and reconciled to man and to God. As we noted earlier, Paul discusses this, this enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles. What is just important to note is that, there's, that this is a twofold en- enmity between Jews and Gentiles, and between sinners and God. Not only did the Gentiles need to be reconciled to the Jews, but both the Jews and the Gentiles needed to be reconciled to God. This was the conclusion that the apostles came to at the Jerusalem conference that's recorded in Acts chapter 15. Peter said that God made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles having cleansed their hearts by faith, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It was not a question of the Gentile becoming a Jew to become a Christian, but the Jew admitting he was a sinner just like the Gentile. Romans 3.23 makes it clear, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have that shared experience of sin. The same law that separated Gentile and Jew also separated man and God. And Christ bore the curse of the law on himself. God wants peace to be both horizontal with each other and vertical with him. That is, he wants Jews and Gentiles to be at peace with one another, and he wants both of them, now reconciled to each other, to be at peace with him. Paul describes here perhaps the greatest mission in history. Jesus Christ not only reconciled Jews and Gentiles, but he reconciled both of them to himself in, the, in one body, the church. Christ is the one who gives us peace with God, and verse 14 says, for he himself is our peace. The word reconcile, we used that a few times this morning, the word reconcile means to bring together again, to bring together again. Um... I was, uh, you know, a, a distraught husband wants to be reconciled to his wife who's left him. A, a worried mother longs to be reconciled to a wayward child. And the lost sinner needs to be reconciled to God. I found a story this, this week as I was preparing that I want to share with you. Uh, it's a story uh, another preacher told. He says, a man stopped in my office one day and said he wanted to get help. My wife and I need a recancellation, he blurted out. <laughs> a recancellation. I I knew he meant reconciliation, but in one sense, recancellation was the right word. They had sinned against each other and, and the Lord, and there could be no harmony until those sins were canceled. A God of love wants to reconcile the sinner to himself, but a God of holiness must see to it that sin is judged. God solved the problem by sending his Son to be the sacrifice for our sins, Thereby revealing his love and meeting the demands of his righteousness, it was truly a recancellation. Your sins have been canceled. So sin is is a great separator in the world. It's been dividing people since the very beginning of human history. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God. Um, Before long, their sons were separated from each other, and Cain killed Abel. The earth is filled with violence. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and the only remedy seemed to be judgment, the flood. But even after the flood, man sinned against God and each other, and they even tried to build their own unity without God's help. Let's build a tower. Let's get there ourselves. The result was another judgment that scattered the nations, confused their tongues. Man needs to be reconciled to each other. It was then that God called Abraham, and through the nation of Israel, Jesus came to the world. It was his work on the cross that broke down the dividing wall of hostility and abolished the enmity between Jew and Gentile and between sinners and God. Finally, verse 18, 19 reminds us that because of the work of Christ, we now have access to the Father, and we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's who we are now. Redeemed Jews and Gentiles are no longer estranged from each other, They are now fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. Race or nationality or political party make no difference. All are redeemed people through the cross of Christ. Alienated foreigners had, with no citizenship papers, these Gentiles had joined the people of God with heavenly citizenship. Not only are they citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but they are also members of a spiritual family. They're part of God's household. In verse 20, Paul switches to the metaphor of, of a building and declares that both Jews and Gentiles are, are stones, as it, as it were, of a building. The building rests on a solid foundation, the faith, testimony, and life of Christ's closest followers, his apostles. It also rests on the foundation of the prophets. These are usually taken as New Testament prophets who, who proclaim and explain the Word of God, but it may also well include the work of the Old Testament prophets in laying the foundation on which Christ built. The key is not the foundation, however, but the cornerstone. The cornerstone. A term taken from Isaiah 28, 16 and Psalm 118, verse 22. It's clear from Ephesians 2, verse 20, that Christ is the cornerstone. The stone to which all other stones are connected. The cornerstone binds the structure together. Jesus Christ united Jews and Gentiles in the church. This reference to this holy temple would be meaningful to both the Jews and the Gentiles in the Ephesian church. The Jews would think of Herod's temple in Jerusalem, and the Gentiles would think of the great temple in Diana. Both temples were destined to be destroyed, but the temple that Christ is building will last forever. That brings us to the third aspect of remembering this morning. First, we've talked about remembering what you were, remembering what you are. Now let's look at the third aspect, and that's remember what you are becoming. Remember what you're becoming. Look at the tense of the, verb, the verbs in verses 21 and 22. Paul says that you are being joined together, verse 21, and you are being built together, verse 22. These are active actions that haven't yet been fully completed. Based on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, with Christ as the cornerstone, the church is being joined together and built together. First, we're joined together both Jew and Gentile. Christ tore down the wall of hostility so that these two different people could be reconciled. He started the work. Second, these now joined people are now being built together. The same actions are true for us today. We're being built together. Uh, Yes, nearly all of us are, are Gentiles here, but we come from different backgrounds, different parts of the country. We have different experiences. We are not the same, but as members of God's family, we are being joined together and that work isn't finished. There's always new members of God's family being added and members of God's family, old and new, are being built together. That's what we're becoming. We're being built together. We're being joined, built together. We're growing into a holy temple and a dwelling place for God, according to Scripture. The work is ongoing, but the church cannot be described as complete until the final day of the Lord, that the final day of the Lord comes, in Revelation 21, it's growing towards what is intended to be in the purpose of God. It's still ongoing. That's what you're becoming. Paul echoes this concept and gives us a little more practical instruction in First Peter chapter two, verse four, verses four and five, where he said, "As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious." You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Both Paul and Peter declare that as saints, as fellow saints, we are actively being joined together, built together to grow into a holy temple and dwelling place for God. Let's explore that point a little bit this morning. What did Paul mean that we're being joined, to get joined and built together into a holy temple and a dwelling place? Understand that in the Old Testament days um, that the, the meeting place between God and His people was the temple. That's where God met with His people, in the temple. It was the place on where the, the glory of God descended. It was the place of His presence. When Christ came, He made obsolete the tabernacle or the temple that was made with hands. He himself was the place of the divine dwelling among men. A truth that's expressed in John chapters 1 and 2. That temple, Jesus, is no longer with us, right? He's ascended to heaven. But now God seeks as his dwelling place the lives of men and women who will allow him to enter by his Spirit. You, we are the temple, the dwelling place of God. Where's God's presence in the world today? In his church, saints, Two further points that need to be noted about this apostle's thought here. First, verse 21 ends with the word, words in the Lord and verse 22 ends with by the Spirit to emphasize that yet again it's, it's only by a person being in Christ, in the Spirit, that the work of building into a dwelling place can happen. No one can have any true place in eternal, the eternal building of God unless they have first found life in Christ. It has to begin there. Secondly, it should be clear that this is not just a a personal or individualistic concept, but also a corporate concept. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? That sounds personal, doesn't it? We read that and we say, yeah, my body is a temple of God. At, At face value, we see the personal or the individual aspect of that. And that's how that verse is often interpreted. However, in English, we don't have a grammatically correct way to differentiate between the singular you and the plural you. All of the yous in that verse I just read, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, are actually second-person plurals. This means we could read it, uh, Paul's letter, as y'all's body. Y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We can southernize it, right? Y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's echoed in Second Corinthians six sixteen, where Paul declared, for we are the temple of the living God. We, plural. There's this inherent communal aspect, if you will, of being a part of God's family. Paul uses the metaphor of the body of Christ to describe the Christian community and how all of its diverse members need each other. And there is also an inherent assumption of teamwork, cooperation, and unity as the people of God function as the temple today. That's what we're being built into, folks. The temple is where God dwells with His people throughout the Bible story. So if the people of God are the temple, that means that it's through these people, the church, that God reconciles the world. In Jesus' day, people traveled from far and wide to encounter God at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the people of God... Us, we are the temple, and we take God's presence to the world. Rather than coming to one place, we take God's presence with us where we go. We're being built up into that. That's what we're being built for. That's who we are becoming. God's people, each group, and each individual is ultimately linked with every other believer. Just as one person does not make a family, just as one brick doesn't make a temple, One person does not glorify God to the maximum without every part of the body of Christ working also. Together we reveal God's character in ways that we could not do it separately. We're being built together. So remember that we, plural, are being joined, built together to become a holy temple, a dwelling place for God in order to fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave us. Go and make disciples. That's what we're being built for. So three things we saw this morning, remember what you were, remember what you are, remember what you are becoming. Let me end with this, uh, a note of practical application for us on this, turn with me if you will to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, John is giving uh, instructions, or Jesus is giving John instructions to to write letters to seven churches. Chapter 2 begins with a letter to the church in Ephesus. The same church that we just read about, right? The same church, the saints at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2. Notice what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. He begins by commending them for things they've done well. But in verse 4, he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This church started well. They started well. They were formed from both Jewish and Gentile believers that God was building together. They worked together, they toiled, they patiently endured, they bared up for His name's sake. They hadn't grown weary, they kept going, but they had lost their first love. They lost their first love. Their passion for Christ, His glory and His kingdom had fallen by the wayside. Notice the cure for their sin, verse 5. Remember, remember therefore from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first the very first thing that Jesus calls them to do after calling out their sin is to say, remember. Remember. Bring us this back to Ephesians chapter 2. Remember what you were. Remember what you are now. Remember what you're being, what you're becoming. I think they'd forgotten that. Um, You've fallen away from these truths. I, I believe they lost their first love because they failed to remember those important truths. When we remember that we're spiritually dead without hope, that through Christ we've been made alive, reconciled to each other, reconciled to God, that we're being built together, then we see ourselves and God and others rightly. Remembering these things should renew our love for the one who makes it all possible. Jesus tells this church church, that they had lost their first love. He tells them to remember, which leads to repentance. He says remember from where you've fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. As I conclude, remembering is important for us, isn't it? Remembering is important. Again, hundreds of times in Scripture, the word remember is found. Our shared experiences give, give us identity and shape the way we live and the way we think. That's true of any family, any community, or any nation, and it's especially true for God's people. I want to end with, with, with one more passage. This is Psalm chapter 105. Psalm chapter 105. Do you want to know what it means, what, what it looks like if you've lost, if you still have your first love? Let's, let's put it that way. If you still have your first love, then Psalm 105 may be true for you. Psalm 105 begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. Look at all the verbs that are in there, all the actions. Give thanks. Call upon His name. Sing to Him. Sing praises. Tell people about His wondrous works. Glory in His name. If you have your first love, those will be true for you. There are many commands in these verses that that encompass worship, evangelism, allegiance, trust, communion. But how are we to fulfill these commands? The answer is through one final command. Verse 5 says, Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. What's the key? Remember. Remember. What we do for God flows out of what He has done for us. The calls to praise, to proclaim, to sing, to tell, to seek, to rejoice... They flow from remembering the wondrous works that Jesus has done. Uh, our prayer guide, the 21 Days of Prayer Guide, if you've been following, following with that, and I, I, I'm grateful for uh, the individual who put that together, thank you. But one of the in the last week, there was a statement that I pulled out of it, and it says this, The, the Bible contains many reminders to God's people to look back and rejoice in His work. Those who remember what He has done in the past find it easier to trust him with their future. I love that quote. Um, The church at Ephesus learned that obedience falters. They lost their first love when memory fails. They failed to remember. Let's not repeat their mistake. Remember this morning what what you were, what you were before you met God, what you are now and what you are becoming, what we as a church are becoming. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for um, loving us, for graciously coming. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were lost without hope, strangers alienated from you. Oh, what a, what a hopeless condition. But you, you, you made us alive. You made a way for us to be re- redeemed, reconciled, for our sin to be recanceled, if you will to bring us back to you, to give us uh, new life, to give us hope, to, to give us uh, togetherness. And Lord, you, your work is not finished. The work's not finished. You're, you're building your church. You're still actively building your church. And each one of us are members of that church, being built together, growing together, becoming the temple of God, declaring your glory, your praise, bringing your presence with us as we travel this this earth lord help us to remember this weekend to remember these things uh, to 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 not lose our first love we thank you in jesus name amen we'll sing